Good morning. <laughs> um, sure. I don't know if I can um, live up to <laughs> the best preacher. I don't like it's the pressure. Um, I don't even know if I need to preach after this morning. Um, Carol, the word you brought is pretty much what I'm going to say. <laughs> um, so I, I just pray that God really is, he's doing something here. And I, I want to keep in that spirit and I want to, I want to keep flowing with the way the Holy Spirit wants to go. Um, and we are busy at the moment as a church, we're busy with a, a sermon series on the book of Judges. And this is week three. And um, just to give you a, a brief overview for those who might not have been here, the, the book of Judges was written during a very chaotic time of Israel's history, or the period that the, that the story of Judges portrays. And it's, it's happened somewhere around, they're not 100% sure, but somewhere around the years 1380 BC up to about 1050 BC. So it's a period of about 300, just over 300 years. And in this time, Israel have been brought out of captivity under the leadership of Moses. They have now crossed into the, the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And then for a period of time, there is no king in Israel. And they find themselves in this very sort of as I said already, a chaotic period. In fact, the very last verse in the book of Judges says this. It's Judges 21 verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, if we, could, we, could, we could draw parallels, and that's pretty much what we're doing between the times then and the times now. Because we live in a time where everyone, it's okay, do whatever's right in your own eyes. And yet over and over and over what happens is you've got these people that are called by God that have seen God in manifestations and miracles and they physically with their own eyes, they've witnessed God and that he's brought them miraculously out of Egypt. He's brought them across the river Jordan. He's brought them into the promised land. They've taken possession of the promised land. And then over and over and over again, the people of Israel forget God and they go through these cycles. As Tim was saying last week, there's sort of the cycle of we are with God, we're close to him, then we kind of dilute the faith a little bit, we kind of do what we feel is right in our own eyes, and suddenly we found ourselves in these dire, troublesome times, Israel was suddenly oppressed, uh, they went through multiple oppressions during this period, and then they cry out to God, so God, you've, for you've forsaken us, and then God raises up a judge who was a civil or military leader of the time who would then lead the people back out of captivity, as it were, or out from under the hand of the oppressor. And once again, there'd be peace in the land for a certain period of time. And if you go and look at those periods of time, it was very often roughly like a generation or so, you know, 40 years, 80 years, some of them a little bit shorter. And they'd have this peace, and then they'd go back into that cycle. Did anybody ever watch the, the, that soap opera, Days of Our Lives? Did you? Never. Okay, for those who aren't familiar with it, I could probably tell you the storyline in like one sentence. And they managed to keep it going for how many decades? I don't know, how long did that show run? Like 30, 40 years? And you'd be watching it captivated going, no, Marlena, like Stefano is not a good guy and he's going to capture you. And I don't know how many times that poor woman was somehow locked in a room. And do you, do you follow what I'm saying? And they kind of, they dragged it out. The same storyline played how many times on our TV screens over the years, and every time I'd be watching it going, that is so dumb. Why didn't she just tell him? Why is she hiding that? Why, is she, why did she climb into whatever and go there? And, and watch this infatuated going, no ways. And then you realize history and our own lives are so very close to that same cycle. 
and we get close to God, and things are going well, and then, oh, because they're going well, we don't really need God that much, so we off track a little bit, and then right back into the pit, and then we cry out to God, you've forsaken us. And so we have, over the last two weeks, we've looked at some of the judges and, and the part that they had to play in Israel's history. And the first week we looked at uh, Ehud and Othniel, and last week Tim preached on Deborah. And if you haven't listened to that message, I wasn't here last week, we were away, but I, was, I listened to it on the podcast. I was LOLing. It was really, really entertaining and, and very pertinent as well. Um, LOL is laugh out loud for those that don't speak um, SMS. <laughs> but it was really entertaining. And um, this morning, I hope I can do justice to the character that we are going to be speaking about, and that is the man Gideon. And in and of himself, he could be an entire sermon series. So I'm going to attempt to condense it and not keep you here too long, because I know we've also got baptisms to go to. Um, but I really encourage you this week, go and read the story of Gideon. It's between the, it's between the chapters 6 and 8 of the book of Judges, um, I'm just going to highlight certain parts that spoke to me, and I'm going to paraphrase here and there. But just to give you an idea, this was now um, after the reign of Deborah. We get to Judges chapter 6, which starts off with these two verses. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Right back into that cycle. I'm hearing a jingle. Is that coming from me? Okay, no, okay. All right. Sorry, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So the children of Israel pulled away from God, and because of that, God allowed them to be delivered into the hand of the Midianites. Now, just to paint the picture, you're going to hear the word Amorite and Midianite. The Amorites were, the, were Canaan, um, and then they were broken up into their individuals. And throughout the different um, stories and judges, you'll meet some of the different sort of tribes who oppressed them. And the Midianites were a nomadic tribe, which means that they would travel from place to place with their livestock in search of the grazing. So the Midianites didn't have a set town per se, but they were a numerous nation. They were, they were, in fact, the Bible describes them as being larger than a swarm of locusts. That's how many of them there were. And they would move into the land just when the grazing was good, just when Israel had now planted and were ready to harvest their crop. The Midianites would walk in with their livestock, they'd pitch their tents, and they'd help themselves to everything. And as a result, the Bible tells us that there was no sustenance in the land. There was no sustenance for the Israelites or even for their livestock. Their oxen and donkeys were all suffering. Um, and in, in uh, Judges 6.6, 6, it says, So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then God sends a prophet to them, and this is what he says. This is in verses 8 to 10. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. I don't think he was yelling this. I think he was, I mean, I'm a parent, and I know what it is. You know when your child comes to you and they've repeated the same mistake again, and you're going... What more can I do? This is all I've done. He also said, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. There's sheer, I don't think it was anger. I think it might have been more this exasperation, like, 
Come on, this is all I've done, and yet you still land yourselves in this. And yet, God then raises up a judge. In verses 11 to 12, it tells us that the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was an orphan, which belonged to Joash the Abezrite, while his son Gideon thrashed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Just to paint the picture, platform, it was the threshing floor, and they'd normally have it slightly raised off the ground, and it would be a big open space so that as you were threshing your wheat, the wind could get access to it and could sort of blow away all the waste and the chat and the things that you didn't need. And in this scenario, when we meet Gideon, the first place we meet him is in a wine press, which if you go and Google an image, basically looks like a hollowed out swimming pool with no water in it. So a wine press is dug into the ground. It's a pit in the ground that you would be able to stand in and not necessarily be seen above. It was not the place for threshing wheat. And yet we find out that Gideon was there, just like the, the Bible tells us that the Israelites had gone underground. They'd hidden in caves and dens because of the Midianites. They tried to hide themselves away from their enemy. Um, Gideon was doing exactly that. He was hidden in the ground doing his work. And the angel of the Lord arrives and goes... God sees you. He's with you, you mighty man of valor. He was anything but courageous at that point. There was nothing valorous about um, Gideon hiding out in the threshing, you know, in the, in the wine press. And then there's this conversation that ensues between the angel of the Lord and between Gideon. And Gideon, at first, you kind of get the idea he doesn't fully comprehend or even believe who he's speaking to. And the angel's saying that him like, I'm going to deliver Israel under you. you you're going to be the hand of God that goes out and that, dis, that like defeats the Midianites. And um, sorry, I'm getting a lot of click. Is it, is it my earring? Oh, I'm sorry. I can hear it. Sorry. <laughs> is that better? Sorry. I'll just do one earring. I'm starting a trend. Just one. Uh, okay. All I can hear is click, 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 click in the back. All right. So oh, that's better. Now, I can't hear it anymore. Okay. Um, you're not the only one that can distract yourself, Tim. Here we go. All right. So Gideon was anything but valorous. He was anything but courageous at that point. And God calls to him, and this conversation ensues. And um, when, when the angel of the Lord says to Gideon, I'm going to deliver the people of Israel under your leadership. You're going to be the one that, that rescues them from the Midianites under my, you know, under, under my hand. Gideon says this. He says, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So just to get the idea, Gideon was not this great, big, well-seasoned, trained, buff soldier. He was essentially a kid. We're not 100% sure of his age, but he was young enough to still be in his father's household. And he was, he was a kid who was hiding out in a wine press, press doing his chores, and he understands within himself, he's like, in all the people, my, my family is the lowest. And in my family, I'm the lowest. In other words, I'm the least of the least. What could God do with me? And then Gideon um, performs a little bit of a test. And he goes away and he fetches an offering. And the angel of the Lord ignites the offering. And then Gideon realizes who it is that he has been talking to. 
And then he believes. And it says at that moment, he built an altar to God in that place. And he basically said, he, he named it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is my peace. And in that moment, right there, in that encounter with God, Gideon began to act as a mighty man of valor. It began, that seed that the angel had called over him, that the angel of the Lord had said to him, began to be planted in his heart, and he realized and, and sort of took the first step in acting on that. And then Gideon goes from there under the Lord's instruction, and he goes to his father's house, where his father has a, an idol that's built to the god Baal, and the Lord instructs him to break down the idol and to break down the image that was next to it and to use those to build an altar to God and then to sacrifice a bull and to, to burn an offering to God. And Gideon does this, but he's still a little bit afraid, so he does this at night. So he goes to, he gathers a couple of men who help him and they do this all under the cover of darkness because he was afraid of what the men of the city and the men of his father's household would say. And in the morning, the men of the city wake up and they see that their idol has been destroyed and they're upset. And of course, somebody sells Gideon out and goes, oh yeah, it was Gideon. It was that guy's son, Joash's son. And the men come against Gideon and they want to capture him and basically make him pay. They want to kill him. And then his father steps in, Joash steps in and says, no, 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 listen, if he destroyed the image of Baal, then let it be Baal who kills him. Let it be like if, God, if, if Baal is so powerful and he's got a case to plead against Gideon, let him plead against him. And that sort of simmers the situation down. So in, you can already see that um, Gideon's initial act of breaking down the, 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 the statue to Baal already has an impact in his family, who obviously worshipped Baal at some point, and already Joash changes his mind. And just then, the Midianites arrive. And it tells us that they set up camp and they're getting ready now. So the Midianites are getting ready. They've come in their numbers. They're getting ready to um, now obviously invade and take over the harvest. And it tells us in chapter 6, verse 34, it says this, But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And in that exact translation, it literally means, if you go back to the Hebrew, that God himself clothed himself with Gideon. This wasn't just an inspiration. This was God himself, the Holy Spirit himself, coming down upon Gideon and raising him up. And then Gideon calls together a mighty army. And it says he's got all the Bezerites, his people, and he's got people from all over Manasseh, and he's got Asha and Zebulun and Naphtali, and he's got all these different clans over Israel. He's summoned them because now the Lord is upon him, and he's got this might and this valor like the angel said he would, and he summons this army. And then there's a, there's a situation where Gideon seeks further assurance from God, and you may know the story of Gideon with the fleece on the ground. It's not, it's not a part I'm going to highlight much today, but it's very interesting where he, he basically is in this moment and says to God, although he knows who he is, he still seeks that further assurance and says, Lord, you know, if you really are with us, I need a sign, and please let the sign be this. And, and God performs the sign not once but twice for him. So now at the start of chapter 7, Gideon has um, raised up a fairly sizable army. And it tells us that, yes, the Midianites outnumbered the locusts, but Gideon had an army of 32,000 people with him. So he had quite a, quite a mighty, mighty number himself. And then God speaks to Gideon. I mean, think about yourself in that moment. I mean, you've been called out of the wine press. Suddenly, you've been told you're going to do this thing. You didn't believe it. Suddenly, you're doing it, and you're like, look at this army I have behind me. Of course I can do this. And then God says, no, 
I don't want that big an army. Because as soon as we, we defeat the Midianites with 32,000 people, the Israelites are going to forget that it was my hand that defeated them. They're going to start thinking, ah, we did this. We got this, 32,000 of us. And so he speaks to Gideon and he says, talk to all the men that are here and tell them if anybody's afraid, they are free to go home. So he gathers all these mighty men and he says to them, you know, gives them the message from God. And 22,000 men back up and leave. So he goes from 32,000, an army of 32,000, he goes down to an army of 10,000. I'd rather have 10,000 people on my side than, than no one, but still. And he goes, okay, a little bit more difficult, we can do this. And then God says, no, no, 10,000 is still too many. I mean, remember, you're facing a tribe that the Bible says are like locusts. There's just a swarm. There's just innumerable. You cannot count them. You're 10,000, and God goes, no, 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 that's too many. And so he leads the men down to the river, and God says, tell all the men to take a drink. And as they're drinking, God speaks to Gideon and says, all the men that um, lap up the water as though they were dogs, in other words, they're down on their hands and knees. I mean, think about it, how many times you've seen a person do that. It's not common, right? Those are the men I want you to pick. And Gideon ends up with 300 soldiers against a swarm of Midianites. I wonder how he felt in that moment. <laughs> like, I came out the wine press. God has done all these miracles. He's assured me. He's assured me. And now, I don't get it, God. I don't see the plan. I don't see. I saw it. I saw it when I had 32,000 people. How many of us can relate? I saw the plan, God, when I had all that money in the bank accounts. I saw the plan, God, when I was feeling good. I saw the plan, God, when, you know, I was sure that we could do this and I had my backups to go with me. 300? And then Gideon speaks to these 300 soldiers and he says to them, we're going to split up into more groups. So he gets a group of 100, 100, 100. And he arms his soldiers. Now at this point, Anyone who knows anything about military, you are going for the best technology, right? You are going like, if I was Gideon, I would have wanted maybe a few tanks, definitely an air force, some big guns. Because if you're going to take out swarms of people, you're going to need some big ammunition. So you would think he's going to have these well-trained 300 soldiers. They're going to be armed to their teeth. They're going to be ready to fight. They're going to have daggers and knives and arrows and whatever else they had it today. They're going to have that all over them, and they're going to march into battle, and God's going to give them victory. But then Gideon goes up to his men and he arms each of them with a trumpet. I think we're going to jazz them to death, Lord. <laughs> gives them a trumpet. He gives them an empty pitcher, which is an empty jar, so made of clay, something they would have had the oil or water in. So he's an empty jar, empty. Like, what are we even going to throw at them, God? And inside the jar, they put a torch. So uh, obviously like a torch that you could light, not a torch, because they didn't have those yet right? That's what he arms his 300 men with, and off they go to face the Midianites. And the Midianites are encamped in a valley. And Gideon, as well, at this point, if you read the story, you'll, you'll see, when you read the story, you'll see that um, he's a little bit anxious at this point, and he says to God, and God says, it's okay, go sneak down to the enemy camp and you'll overhear a conversation, which he does, and it inspires him again. Because it turns out the Midianites themselves were just a little bit afraid of what was coming. They weren't quite sure what it was. And then at night, they go up. So we've got, all the, we've got um, Gideon and his men, and they're now surrounding the valley. And Gideon says to them, we're going to break into these hundred, hundred, hundred. And when the hundred that are with me 
shout out and light their torches, I want you guys to do the same. And basically, it's a well-orchestrated, so I would imagine sort of like a bowl around the enemy, and you've got these mountains on top. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, there's this almighty roar. And it says this. I'm going to read it to you. This is Judges 7, verse 17 to 22. He says, this is what he instructs his men. He says, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet... I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were, with him, who were with him came to the outpost at the camp at the beginning of the middle of the watch, just as they had posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. So all of a sudden, you've got the Midianites who are in the middle of sleep. They're kind of swapping over their watchmen. And there's this almighty roar and noise of breaking things all around them in the valleys. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So the Midianites now wake up with this fright. And then it tells us, that every man stood in his place around the camp and the whole army ran out, cried, sorry, ran, cried out and fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp and the army fled. And then it tells us where they fled to. The Midianites defeated themselves because there was so much confusion that they actually didn't know where the enemy was. They didn't know where the shots were coming from. They just saw fire on the hills. They heard this almighty noise. It must have sounded like 300,000 men. They hear people shouting, declaring the Lord, shouting out Gideon's name. And these guys in the camp in the middle of the night, they, they just start, I suppose, fighting with anyone around them. And they end up sort of fighting against themselves. And then after that, the story of Gideon continues where they then send messengers and um, it carries on where they now basically root out all the Midianites and there's, there's victory in the Israeli camp. I wonder if when Gideon had been in the wine press and he'd been told, you will deliver Israel, God's chosen you to deliver Israel, if he could ever have imagined such a story playing out. Gideon's God is the God of the impossible. Gideon's God is our God. And we were speaking this morning about circumstances that we face. And we were speaking about things that have been spoken over our lives, things that are oppressing us. What wine press might you find yourself in today? Where might you find yourself hiding or attempting to hide? Not just from God, but probably from the problems of the world. Where might you find yourself um, when the angel of the Lord finds you and he greets you and he goes, Hi there, you mighty man or you mighty woman of valor. Would you believe him if he said to you what he'd said to Gideon? Gideon's God, our God, is the God of the impossible circumstances. This morning, we face impossible challenges, many of us. 
And if we haven't, or we aren't at the moment, we probably have in the past, and we definitely will in the future. The Bible tells us that we, we, we're going to have trouble. It's going to come. It's not a surprise when it does, but sometimes it takes us by surprise. And we've got these impossible circumstances where we are standing going, I don't see a way out, God. Or we've got the sense of, who am I but the least of the least? It's in the impossible circumstances. It's in the impossible battles that we face. It's in the impossible things that have been spoken over our lives that we go, no, God, I think you've picked the wrong person here. It's in those moments, in those impossible moments, that God truly can use us if we lean into him. 1 Samuel 16 verse 7 says, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Every single one of us has got a calling over our lives. God has called us. He has a name for us. Maybe yours is mighty man of valor. Maybe it's something else. But God has called each and every one of us to something. Even when we don't feel like those people, even when we look at the name that God has given us and we go, no, I don't think you understand, Lord. I'm the least of the least here. God's like, that's fine, because it's not in your strength, it's in mine. What has God called you to this morning? What name has he spoken? What, what path has he set in front of you that you might be wrestling with going, no, God, I don't, it's a good idea, but I don't think you get it. I, like, this is me. You can pick someone else, because this is me. I, I couldn't possibly. No, we can't. But God can. Other people may have spoken things over your lives. They may have told you what you are or are not. Their voices are not the ones that matter. Your own voice is not the one that matters. No offense. It's what God, your creator and designer, has spoken over you. That is who you are. Hiding in a wine press or a bar or wherever else you might hide. What has God spoken over you? Isaiah 46 verse 9 to 10 says this. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Gideon's God is our God. He has called each of us to something. Doesn't matter where we're at at the moment. He sees us as he's designed us to be. And if we will allow him, he will, we, he, he will guide us down that path that he set before us. I think so often we make the mistake. I, I love what Gideon did. The first thing, when he realized who he was speaking to, and he, he first of all accepted what was spoken over him. You know, initially he was going, no, it can't be. It was the angel of the Lord. The first thing he did was get right with God and built, built an altar. The next thing he did was clear out the house. 
so that his hands were empty so that God could put something in them. I think sometimes we love the idea, yes, God will use me, but this is what I've got, and this is what I've clung to, and this is what I'm comfortable with, so Lord, this is what you can use. And God's saying, no, you've got to clear out the house. You've got to have the right equipment. Even if the equipment makes no sense, even if the equipment is going up against an army with a torch, a trumpet, and a pitcher, if God has given it to you, you will not fail. I think sometimes we get so despondent with God because we've got this plan and we're expecting God to bless our idea. Like, Lord, this is where I see my life, and so could you make it work? How often are we brave enough to go, well, I'm the least of the least, but I'm here. My hands are empty, Lord, so you can fill them. I'm going to, I'm going to follow where you lead. I'm not going to try and drag you in the direction I want to go. This morning, the thing you might be wrestling with, the impossible situation, if it is one that is given to you by God, he will make a way. If it is one you are wrestling with that is not of God, we pray this morning that you will learn to let it go, that your hands might be open, that your eyes might focus on him, and that he might be able to take you in the direction he has designed. Gideon was not a perfect man. When you continue reading his story, he had a couple of times where he fell. He didn't necessarily have the best ending. Some of us have come from really, really hard backgrounds, really difficult circumstances. People might care about that. Society might judge us for it. God sees us. He's declared already a name over your life. He's declared a circumstance for you. He's declared a path for you. All you have to do is accept that. I'm not going to belabor the point anymore this morning. I'm going to ask if we can stand together and pray. And I think that final verse that we sang, and we're not going to sing it, but I don't, I've never heard that song with that verse before. I don't know where it came from, but that was incredible. Light the fire that was once there, Lord. Return to us our first love. Let the fire burn bright and clear as it used to. So many of us are slogging it through life going, oh, just got to get one day to the next. Jesus has come that we can have life and have it to the full. Let's be Gideons in our time. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that throughout this series, Lord, you would speak into each of our circumstances. Father God, teach us your ways. Teach us your plans. Lord, anything that we might be wrestling with that is not of you, Father, we cast it aside this morning in faith. Lord, no matter how hard it may be to let go, Father, let us, let us winnow away the things that aren't of God, that we must, as you used Gideon and all of the other mighty. God, may we not do what is pleasing in our own sight, Lord, but may our focus be on you. Lord, may our paths forever be the ones that you have directed for us. Lord, I thank you for every person, every family that is represented here, Lord. That through Gideon, you changed and rescued a nation. Through each and every one of us where there's a family situation, a family member we are trusting for. Someone, Father, that we have long cried over, prayed for, Lord, and felt utter despair for. Father God, you've got them. Lord Jesus, may you use us in a mighty way. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.